How's that for a little bit of an intro? This morning, uh, Bill joked with me that he gave me the text on the flogging, and he would take the crucifixion. And I decided that that was a pretty good deal for me, so I accepted. So good luck next week. Um, We are still in the book of John, believe it or not. I'm not sure how many days we're going on or weeks we're going on, but hey, John's pretty great, isn't it? We're getting to the end. Uh, This morning we're going to be in John chapter 19, and we're going to be looking at verses uh, 1 through 16. Now, last week, if you were here, Bill took us through the trials of Jesus and Peter's denial of Jesus. And the text ended, it was a lengthy text, but it ended with the people crying out for Barabbas to be released, an insurrectionist, a murderer. They were yelling, demanding that Pilate release this man. And so we pick up kind of in the middle of the story in chapter 19. And we're going we're gonna to look at this text. Uh, it's going to break down in three different sections. And before we really get to, everybody loves this part, right? What, what does this have to do with me? Before we get to that, I want to try and transport us to this scene, to this text. So I know we're all we're in a big building and in these beautiful rustic orange pews. But I want to I want to transport us to the text. There's a lot of perspectives going on here and we're not going to be able to cover all of them. But we're going to do our best to, to be here. And so I'm going to start I'm going to read verses 1 through 5 and then we're going to kind of move on from there. Okay? Look with me at verses 1 through 5, chapter 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Now we're going to see three different sort of observations in this text. And this first one, as you'll see on the screen, this first passage, verses 1 through 5, is really a spectacle of mockery. Someone saw these slides earlier, and when they looked at it, they said, I thought it said a spectacle of monkeys. But it's not monkeys, it's mockery. It's a spectacle of mockery. Our text opens with a short sentence, but don't be deceived. I'm sure there have been sermons preached just on this verse. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. As much as we try to transport ourselves to this text, I don't think we fully can. Seems like a harmless sentence. 
He took him and he flogged him. The flogging of Jesus was in some ways just as brutal as the crucifixion. In many cases, criminals would not even make it to their final execution due to the harshness of the Roman floggings. You see, they would put together this whip of cords. They would attach sharp pieces of metal and sharpened pieces of bone. They would embed it into these whips, into these cords. I don't have to go any further. They would use it to hit people, to beat them. It would completely mangle their body. So one verse in, and Jesus' body is mangled. His back is probably not even red. It's probably purple. In a great display of irony and mockery, the Roman soldiers place on Jesus a crown. Crown's good, you say. It's a crown of thorns. I read where these crowns could have potentially been 12 inches long, these thorns. This isn't just sitting lightly on his head. This is dug deep into his skull. The pain alone from that. Can you imagine? They put on him a robe, a purple robe. Another moment of irony. Purple represents royalty. And they say, Jesus, look at this king. Hail, king of the Jews. They come and strike him. On the face, soldier by soldier. Imagine the perspectives. You have the soldiers who are, who are doing this beating, performing it. You have Pilate overseeing it. You have maybe Roman bystanders, maybe looking on, perhaps in confusion. Maybe some saying, yeah, this, this man deserves this. And you have the Jewish people. You have the chief priests and the authorities celebrating. I'm sure there are some disciples standing by, followers of Jesus, saying, we were with this man for three years. What, what is happening? He's going to die. And the, then the Roman governor, Pilate, he appears in front of the mob of people. And it is a mob. They're essentially rioting. Pilate brings out Jesus. He, de- he declares his innocence. There's irony in that. He says, see, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Then Pilate exclaims, behold the man. It's almost like he's saying, look at this man, this poor man beaten and bloodied. Surely this is good enough for you. You don't need me to do anything more, do you? He's he's helpless. He's as good as dead. You see, mockery is what our sin is. Our sin makes a mockery of Jesus. 
To mock someone means to insult them, means to make light of something, means to pretend to love and serve something when, in fact, you do the opposite. That's what we see here in these first few verses. And as sick and twisted as this is, as great as this mockery is, the chief priests and the officers, they want to take it at least a step further. Look with me at verse 6. I'm going to read through verse 11. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die. Because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard the statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you? And authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all, unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Let's pause there. First, we saw a spectacle of mockery. Next, we see an elimination of authority. The word authority appears a number of times in these few verses. You see, mockery alone doesn't satisfy the corrupt nature of these Jewish leaders. They want Jesus dead. They want him eliminated. They want him wiped out so that they can continue in their man-made traditions, in their holding their places of high esteem, right, and authority and power over the people. Jesus is coming, and he's wrecking that, and they don't like this at all. Pilate, in his cunning, he he teases the Jews in verse 6. He says, how about you take him and crucify him? He's innocent according to me. But the Jews, according to their own law, they don't have the authority to crucify Jesus. Actually, the Old Testament law states in the book of Leviticus, I think I've got the verse, I'm going to put it on the screen. Leviticus 24, 16, whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him, the sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. You see, the Jews were claiming that Jesus was blaspheming God because he was making himself the son of God. And this required death, but they couldn't crucify him. They wanted him crucified. They're hoping Pilate will succumb to their pressure. They're hoping that a Roman ruler would take heed of religious arguments. Kind of foolish. And then we get to verse 8. And before I read it, have you ever, have you ever been in a conversation, maybe with one other person or a group of people, and you just 
you, you're so dead set on your convictions, and you're de- so dead set on the truth, and then someone makes a comment, and internally, you don't dare show it externally, but internally you're like, oh boy, I might be wrong. This is kind of scary. Maybe, he's, maybe I'm not right about this. Yeah, we've all been there. I don't need to ask you to raise your hand. We've all been there. This is kind of what happens with Pilate. Verse 8, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. I wish I could see a video of this. We can't get into the mind of Pilate. So I I don't want to take up a bunch of time on this, but I can only imagine. They had just said, Jesus has made himself the son of God. And I can only imagine Pilate thinking, what if this man really is from God? What am I going to do with that? I'm in charge of this man. Am I really going to kill him? Hand him over to be crucified? I bet his hands were a bit clammy. Just a guess. So they've been in front of this mob, Pilate and Jesus, and now Pilate takes Jesus back into his headquarters. And he asks a question to Jesus that on the surface seems seems like it's not significant. He asks Jesus, he says, where are you from? Now what, what kind of governor over a supposed criminal asks the question, Where are you from? What does that have to do with anything? What he's really asking is, man, who are you? Jesus, who are you? And remember, Jesus has been flogged. He's standing there bleeding, probably having a hard time just standing. In the snap of a finger, Pilate could get rid of him, but he asked him, where are you from? And what does Jesus say? Nothing. Again, we don't know, but I'd love to think that Jesus just stares him right in the eye. Nothing. This silence angers Pilate. In fact, I was, I was reading one commentary, and one of the scholars I was reading wrote, it's a terrible day when Jesus is silent to a man. And I don't think he was just talking about Pilate. When a man's pride and ego is so built up that nothing Jesus can say will do anything. It's been me at times. I'm sure it's been you at times. Pilate digests this silence as a challenge to his authority. So he asserts himself again. He says, oh, you won't speak to me? Do you not know that I can literally kill you? I have the authority to crucify you. Also, I have the authority to release you. So you may want to say some things. I added a little bit there. That was kind of a paraphrase. I like to think that's what he said. Jesus finally chimes in. The whole text. This is a one sentence, technically two sentences we have from Jesus. Might be a time where we want to listen. Jesus states in verse 11, 
you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. I believe we would do well to remember Jesus' words from John 10. I put it on the screen. Verses 17 and 18. Jesus says, For this reason, the Father loves me. Because, this is the reason, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. More irony in the text. Pilate claiming ultimate authority. And Jesus saying, Pilate, your authority is derived from my Father. And I am the Son of my Father. Therefore, your power is derived from me. What a scene. I think we humans, we struggle with this submission to authority, right? There's a, in my opinion, there's a new trend going, going around. And maybe I'm late to the party, so maybe it's not new. But it's the trend of podcasts. Raise your hand if you listen to podcasts. Yeah. Everyone. I'm with you. I did this week. It's fascinating. It used to be the saying was, there's an app for that. Now it's, there's a podcast for that. There's a podcast for everything possible. And if we sat down and took a poll, why do we listen to podcasts? I'm not saying, by the way, I just want to get this in the, in the, out in the open. I'm not saying podcasts are bad. Just make an illustration here. So don't cut me down yet. Why do we listen to podcasts? In my opinion, one of the number one reasons, this is my opinion, is that we want knowledge we want to know more things. This past week, I discovered a podcast called Stuff You Should Know. It's a dangerous hole, okay? But it's good. And there are a few. I listened about Farming 4.0. Yeah, did you even know what 1, 2, and 3.0 are? That's what I thought. I listened about where sugar came from and why, how it ravages our bodies. I, I listened to a podcast on how soda was made, the history of soda. I listened to a few more. I won't tell you the topics. It's a little embarrassing. I listened to all those this week. We fill our minds with things. I, I, I wanted to know about them. So in case I'm in a random conversation and someone asks about how soda was made, I can be like, hey, let me tell you, actually. Schweppes. Important name. I listen to an hour of something. We listen to an hour of something and pretend like we're professionals. We're experts. I do it, too. I'm not just saying this about you all. We listen to podcasts because we want authority. Excuse me, because we want knowledge. But the point is, the end game is not knowledge. The end game, I think, is authority. We want to be able to have authority in conversation. We want to be valuable. We don't want to just sit there and listen to other people. we got to chime in like Peter does all the time. And see, we do this, as silly as it sounds, we do this in our relationship with Jesus. We want to eliminate his authority because we want the authority. And we think if we can have all the knowledge about something, then we don't need his authority. We can just have it ourselves, and we can be in charge of what we do. And if you look in the text here, 
the Jews and Pilate pretend like they have the authority over Jesus. The Jews, according to their law, they're saying he should be killed. Pilate's saying, Jesus, do you not know I have the authority over you to kill you or to release you? I mean, Jesus could just go off on him, but he doesn't. He just says, you, you don't even know what you're talking about. Your authority is from my father. So we've looked at this spectacle of macro. We've looked at this elimination of authority. In this last portion of the text, we're going to see the demotion of a king. You could even say the destruction of a king. The deliverance of a king. You pick. Look at verse 12. I'm going to read to the end, verse 16. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Despite Pilate's attempt to release Jesus, the Jewish leaders pull the ultimate trump card. They appeal to Pilate's greatest allegiance, Caesar. Are you on Caesar's side or not? He works for Caesar. Hence, he's on his side. Keep in mind here that the Jews were not fond of the Romans' oppressive rule. But here they act all buddy-buddy just so they can eliminate Jesus and attempt to squash his kingship. They want to make a criminal out of a king. Little do they know that Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. Something Jesus has just made clear to Pilate a few verses before in chapter 18, verse 36. He says, my kingdom's not of this world. That's why I'm not fighting you. We don't fight against flesh and blood. So in an effort to save face and prove allegiance, Caesar, Pilate, he brings Jesus to what the text calls the stone pavement, also known as the judgment seat. This is the seat where criminals would receive their sentence for crimes they were tried for. The God of all creation subjects himself to the judgment of man. And Pilate, in his last attempt at mockery, he says, Behold your king. First it was behold this poor man, now it's behold your king. He's teasing the Jews. Years and years ago when Great Britain had kings, 
They would, whenever it was time to usher in a new king, they would adorn him in this fine clothing and jewels and crowns. People would surround the king on all sides. And the king would take turns facing, facing the people. And they would say, they would shout, God save king. Now, of course, it's where we get God save the queen. But it was God save king, God save king. It was this picture of honor and respect and loyalty. It's what we should see in this text. But we see the opposite. Instead of reacting with respect and honor, the Jews continuous, continue excuse me, in their chanting, in their riotous chanting. They want this man, Jesus, to be killed so bad that they say they make their most astonishing statement in the entire text. Look at verse 15. After they keep saying, away with him, crucify him, Pilate says, shall I crucify your king? This is what they say. We have no king but Caesar. One person I was reading about this, he said the very statement must have taken Pilate's breath away. And he must have looked at them in half bewildered, half cynical amusement. The Jews were prepared to abandon every principle they had in order to eliminate Jesus. They wanted to sit on the throne of their own kingdom. They were done with this Jesus guy who was threatening their own kingdom what they thought to be their kingdom. And what's even more ironic is that the Jews all through the Old Testament, who do they proclaim allegiance to? Yahweh, the God of the Bible. It's a theocracy. God is their king. And they say, we follow you. But then they ask for judges. They ask for kings. They ask for prophets. They reject all these people that God puts in their midst. And here they reject the Son of God, the King of Kings. They do the same thing they've been doing for hundreds of years. They reject the King who's come to save them. And as I sat back and read this passage over and over this week, it kind of hit me that I'm not any different than the Jewish authorities in this text. And as I mentioned, there's lots of perspectives going on here. And we can't get to all of them. But I want to look at it from the perspective of the chief priests, the ones who, in name, will say, God, you're king. But in reality, they're their own king. You see, not only in our sin do we make a mockery of Jesus, but we want to eliminate his authority and we want to assume kingship in our own lives. what our flesh wants to do and we succumb to it we mock jesus that's what our sin is it's a mockery especially for those of us who have claimed yeah i follow this guy who died for me but then i'm going to go over here and mock him by living in this pattern of sin now of course this is where the gift of, of repentance and forgiveness comes in i'm not saying we can attain perfection and stop sinning forever we can't do that but we can acknowledge who has rightful kingship in our lives. 
We have the ability to crown Jesus, but so often we crown him with thorns. We have the ability to put a robe on him, but we, we, we put a fake robe on him. That we dye purple, but it's not really purple. We say in name, God, you're king. But in reality, what we live out is we demote him and we say, no, I'm actually king. Our sin is what eats us from the inside. But can I provide some hope? See, His grace is sufficient for you. His mercy. His mercy is never ending. And His grace comes to us in many different forms. But in, in the primary form, God's grace comes to us in the person of Jesus, not in a thing that He gives us. See, it's the person, it's himself that he's given to us. That's a picture of grace. And, and at, a, at the very time of this preparation of the Passover, as it mentions in verse 14, the priest would be sacrificing animals at this very moment to provide, to atone for sin. But again, another great moment of irony. We find Jesus on the judgment seat for us. Offering himself up as a sacrifice. It was, Jesus didn't belong in that seat. Pilate belonged in that seat. Jesus should have been judging him. But Jesus stood on the stone pavement in our place. And he said, I'll take on the judgment. That's, that's the gospel and if you even take a step further back and look at the overarching just structure of this text, Jesus is on trial, right? Okay, here's the glorious truth of the gospel. Jesus is tried. If you notice in the text, he's not convicted. He's never, he's never given a guilty verdict. But he's killed. He's executed. So he's tried, and then he's executed. And Pilate, over and over, he says he's innocent, according to me. But us, you see, we're tried, and we're convicted. Our sin makes us guilty. But you know what we don't receive? We don't receive the fatal sentence that he receives, that he takes for us. See, we're tried and convicted and not executed. We're spared. We're delivered. Because the deliverer, Delivered himself up for us. Each one of us is put on trial. Not to weigh our good and bad deeds. Hoping that the good will prevail. We're put on trial because of our sin. And the verdict is the same for every single person. Guilty. Guilty, 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 guilty. We're guilty before him. But he takes the punishment. On our behalf. He takes separation from God on the cross. On our behalf. See Jesus offers another way. Despite being convicted. There's a way to reverse the sentencing. We receive the guilty charge. But he bears. The fatal sentence. Do you see the grace in that? See, Jesus delivers himself up 
In fact, as the worship team comes forward, I was looking at a I was looking at the subtitle. If you have the ESV Bible, you'll notice that starting in John 19, it says, it says Jesus delivered to be crucified. And don't tell this to my professor because he's on the ESV translation committee. But I think it should say Del Jesus delivers himself to be crucified. It's a little deceiving. He was in control. He was in authority. He delivered himself up. He delivered himself up because he loves you. And he wants to reconcile the relationship between God and mankind. He delivered himself up because he knew that the pain of being separated from you, who he created, would be greater than the pain that he endured on the cross. Kind of hard to fathom. He delivered himself up so that you would see the weight of your sin on his shoulders. And that you wouldn't just see it, but you would run to him. And an attitude of, of thanksgiving and gratefulness. He sat on the judgment seat so that we, by faith in his sacrifice on the cross, wouldn't have to endure judgment for our sins. And despite being innocent of any crime, he was willing to subject himself to mockery. To judgment. To the worst form of punishment, even to death. And he did that for you. We hear that a lot in the Christian circle. He, he really did that for you. He, like he didn't just do it for himself. He did it for you. And the, despite us being charged with a guilty verdict, we can be set free based on his work alone. He was delivered up to set you free from the bondage to sin. And to run after Jesus. In just a moment, we're going to reflect and respond on this unbelievable news that's good. We're going to respond by partaking in the Lord's Supper. But before we do that, Bill's going to come up and introduce that in just a second. Before we do that, I just want you to take a moment just to maybe bow your head and reflect. on what it means for you that Jesus, the great deliverer, delivered himself up for you. He faced trial. He knew he was innocent. He was declared innocent. But he was delivered up to be executed. Does that mean anything to you? Did you know that through faith and, and trust, and Jesus' work on the cross, and then through the power of his resurrection, you can have eternal life. You can have abundant life here, eternal life forever. This gift is offered to you. If you don't know Jesus, you can know him. You don't have to clean yourself up and then go to him. You can go to him as you are, guilty. Because he takes it on himself. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for how much you love us. So much so that you would hand yourself over to the authorities. The one who has all the authority, you would 
hand yourself over to another authority to bear our sin and our shame upon yourself. God, we're so grateful for you. And we're thankful for how you've come to us in your son Jesus. God, may we honor you and glorify you this morning. As we partake of your body and blood, may we be reminded that it was shed. It was shed for me. God, you took it upon yourself so that we could have life in your name. We could have hope and joy and peace. God, we love you. It's in your name, in the powerful name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.